Welcome to Results May Vary. This is a podcast to help you design your life. Tracy and I have worked in the field of design and innovation for over 17 years between us. We've helped sustain a food revolution for Jamie Oliver and redesign the way LA County votes. We've even engaged the most creative minds in science by turning their genetic information into music at the TED conference. Throughout our careers, we always wondered, what if we took this same creative problem-solving process we use to help well-known organizations solve their toughest challenges and applied it to people's lives? Would it work? Would anyone listen to us? And maybe even scarier, what would happen if they did? Results May Vary is a thoughtful experiment to see just what happens when you set out to intentionally design your life. Um, so basically, you've known Aaron for years Gosh, and years, at right? Least, yeah, at least uh, 12 years. Cool. So yeah. why did you think he would be a good guest on our show today? I think Aaron is so just thoughtful. If you listen to Aaron's background, he's got a background in the technical academic terms of human factors. And most of us don't know, but human factors experts design the way things should work for people and or think about it and i remember talking to aaron about his first project which was designing where all the buttons go for for uh pilots in their airplanes and so i was like huh that's interesting that was his first project it was prior to ideo he was doing work in that regard and we'll have to confirm that with aaron (laughs) (laughs) he's like no i didn't (laughs) know so but um Aaron has um, great skills in going deep in people's lives. And I thought, hey, this would be really interesting. He's translated that across food and health and has done a lot of work in health. And I think he'll tell us about that today. But um, I think Aaron is just a very thoughtful person when it comes to how people work. And um, as we go on this journey around people and their individual designs, uh, I thought Aaron would be really insightful for us to talk to. All right, everybody. Aaron Scalar. Hello, Aaron. Thanks for joining Results May Vary. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. (laughs) (laughs) It's great to have you. We are fascinated by you as a human being. You've done a lot with your life, and you're also applying design thinking to completely rethink an industry known as healthcare. And so we'd love to talk to you today about both some of your personal experiences and then how you're helping other people design their best lives and some of their best health outcomes. So we'll just crack right in. And as you know, the podcast is about using design thinking to apply the principles of design thinking to individuals and thinking about how we can help people design their best lives. And so what do you think about this idea of applying design thinking to individuals? Yeah, I'm thinking about it now for the first time. And uh, it occurs to me like that all sort of the way that we all practice design thinking is starting with individuals. So like what we do is we start with individuals, understand what's going on for them, and then sort of put those together and compile them, synthesize them into insights and opportunities and new solutions and then apply them. And why not apply them back to individuals? Of course, that makes perfect sense. It's a cycle. So along those threads, do you consciously or maybe even subconsciously apply design thinking to your own life? 
Well, certainly just being in the design world for so long, I am surrounded by post-it notes and like that's how I think about things in my own my personal life with my wife and sort of making plans. Like we do think things out in a similar way, but it's hard to articulate specifically like I'm doing design thinking right now because it's just more like I'm living my life and like this is just part of how I think and how I work. Could you give an example of some way that you and your wife have use some of the principles of design thinking to plan your lives? I'm just trying to think of some recent decisions that we've made, like planning out a vacation. It's not like that we like sat down and like held a brainstorm, but just have that mentality of like, now we're in the generative mode of like coming up with ideas. And as opposed to like picking an idea and filter, 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 it's like focusing on like, what mode are we in? Are we in the expansion mode of adding to the ideas and then when are we switching to the convergent mode of like picking the best idea and making it work so we kind of like circled around that cycle sort of went through a few cycles of that in our recent vacation planning mode and now we're on our way we're going to palm springs in a couple of weeks with some relatives and another family aaron we were just talking a little bit before the call around you'd moved since i've seen you in a bit and i know i know you've lived there for a while now but you talked about the decision of what place you were going to live in. Can you talk a little bit about how you went about that decision process? Sure. I, that might even be closer to an engineering process, but we could call it a design thinking process where we live in the Bay Area. And I, a few years ago, got a new job where my commute was a little bit pushing the boundaries of comfort. And so we made a spreadsheet, like actually using Google Docs of all of the different neighborhoods in the Bay Area that we would consider living. And it was a pretty expansive spreadsheet and then rated each one on a bunch of important categories like how accessible they are to San Francisco, how good are the schools, are they near an earthquake fault line, are they close to my parents, and just really weighted those different categories with a different rating scale and ended up seeing like there was one neighborhood that surprised us. Like it was not even like on our radar. I mean, it was on our radar enough to make it on the list, but like didn't occur to us that that would be our dream neighborhood. And, and we actually live in Castro Valley, California. And it just like met so many of the criteria that were important to us. So it sounds like that had a lot of logic to it. Did you also fall in love with that neighborhood? Or where did the emotional factors kind of play in? Yeah, well, it was more like in the design thinking process, you go through that synthesis stage and you come through that moment of like, pow, here's the insights. And for us, the insight was like, oh, Castro Valley meets our needs. And we just like jumped into action and like start, started spending time here, started talking to people that lived here or knew people who lived here, got to know the different parts of the neighborhoods, different schools here, and just... Yeah, and I jumped in and started talking to real estate agents here. <laughs> yeah, two things uh, that are coming to mind as you're explaining this to us, which is awesome, is you kind of laughed and said, it's not like we sat down and had a brainstorm as you were deciding on your vacation. And the other theme we talk a lot about at Results May Vary is the, the idea of just low barrier experimentation. And we tend to, as individuals, act in a very much an all or nothing way. It's like, if I'm going to try to lose weight, I'm all in and the, or I'm all out. I don't really kind of dabble in it. I just go all in or out. And so I'm curious, why do you think it seems logical to me that you'd want to brainstorm about big decisions in your life, but that people would really get a lot out of that? 
why do you think people don't do that? I honestly don't think it occurs to people. I'm even working on a project at work with, so the way our organization, Healthogen, is, is broken up, we have a portfolio of multiple different companies, and I'm working with one of the companies that I haven't worked with before. And they have an in-house designer, and they've contracted with another designer. And I just have noticed, it struck me, like these two designers like came up with a solution on the first day and just have stuck with it. And I think that's how most people operate. Just like that's the default human way of being. If like you have a problem, you come up with a solution and you act on it. And I think that the designer mindset encourage us all to spend a little bit more time in that idea stage and with the intention of like discovering the best idea and the ultimate idea and not just what's the first idea or the, you know, the first idea that works, let's just do it. I think that's maybe just human nature and it takes something to stop and look around and really dig deep and explore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great points. You've always taken on interesting side projects, and it's, uh, I've always admired your ability to get those things done, the most recent one being prescribed design. Can you talk a little bit about the role of side projects in your life outside of your full-time job and a little bit about why you pursue them and, and perhaps take us down the road of how prescribed design happened? Yeah, so, I mean, for me, like prescribed design, it is a side project in that like I have a full-time job and this is something I'm doing on the side. But for me, it's, I would call it more of an umbrella project. Like this is what I'm doing for my career and what I see missing in the world of the sort of my career is uh, being a designer in healthcare. This is something that I see as missing. And so I see like there's an opportunity to put it in. And what prescribed design is, is it's building up a network of people who care about reinventing healthcare and, and coming up with great solutions for the healthcare challenges that we all face, both as individuals and as a society, and that we see that design is a key element to contribute to those solutions. So the community of people are designers, but actually a bigger component of the community are physicians and other clinicians who really care about making a difference and are starting to see design as a tool. And your question is more about how does the role of the side project fit in? And for me, it ties everything together in terms of my personal passion, my commitment to expanding the field as a whole, my commitment to being a contribution outside of my specific job. And when I started to think about this and started to work on it and started to have these conversations, it's just, it's such a huge opportunity that it just naturally calls me into action. I just you know, jumped in and like, there's just so many actions to take and you just take them and, um, and so many people to meet and everyone I talk to has, you know, joined in the conversation and, and really added to it. And um, it's become really a group effort and um, it's, re it's very rewarding. Um, and it's something that that's rewarding outside of my, my, my role at Healthogen, but at the same time is contributing to my, my current job and contributing to my, my, sort of my whole future of my career overall. I mean, it's lovely to hear you talk about your commitment and kind of seeing yourself as a part of a larger vision. Um, I'm wondering, what are some of the first steps that you had to take to be uh, called into action as you were talking about that? Um, well, the first step is like knowing that there's a gap. And when I, um, I left IDEO and joined Healthogen, I was 
the only designer and like had to make up my own job description. Like, here's what a designer is going to do in this um, healthcare organization. And what was amazing, I didn't know what to expect. And what was amazing is this, the reception was so positive, just, you know, the reception of me, the reception of the team that I hired, um, the, the appreciation and acknowledgement of all of the work that we did. Um, in healthcare, there's just such a gap between the, you know, the, the hated words MVP, which is, you know, the minimal product that, that most healthcare companies go for um, and what's possible. And uh, through the design processes and design output that our team created, like we just like lit up different teams across the organization and I saw what was possible. And I saw like, not only was it possible, but just the reception was so positive that like, it just like had to happen. And like just elevating that conversation, the more and more that conversation happened about design and healthcare, the bigger the impact could be and the wider it would spread. So I started off just talking to other people who are working in the same field, other designers, other healthcare practitioners who actually get design and care about design. And I just started talking to them, what do they think is missing? And I talked to like the whole range of people, people who are very established in their careers, people who are really just starting off, people who are sort of working on their own, trying to do something and others who are part of larger organizations. And I was just looking for like, what's the gap? What's missing that we could put in that would have these conversations get louder and louder and louder? Aaron, for those listening that may not have any experience in healthcare at all, could you give us a kind of tactical, concrete example of how you saw design help people and with their health? I'll start take a step back from there even is the part of healthcare that I'm in is sort of responding to the shift in America towards accountable care and the whole Obamacare world is incentivizing this shift to this new way of working for basically for hospitals and physicians and clinicians to be accountable. And what that means is it's a shift in mindset and it's a shift in the need for the tools that you use. So for example, right now in the current model of healthcare, doctors treat whoever happens to make an appointment and shows up and sits down in their office, like that's who they treat. And in the accountable care model, the doctor's practice and the hospital system has to start to take accountability to, for a whole population of patients, whether they show up or not. And what's uh, happening in the industry that's responding to that is a shift in adding new technology tools that allow doctors to like look at their caseload and say, oh, here are these sets of patients that we're not reaching and who are not calling in and making appointments or who are not taking their medication. It's more like finding the gaps and then going after them proactively. So there's a bunch of new demand for new tools and technology that's being brought into the healthcare system. And there's a flood and there's a whole category of the world called health IT and all the digital health records and just everything's going digital now. And for the most part, like it's an amazing revolution in terms of what's technically possible, but across the board, pretty much every single product I've ever seen being introduced into this context is that bare minimum MVP, like 
from a design perspective, like embarrassing to look at from a usability perspective, like a horrific user experience for the disrupting the doctor's day, making it inaccessible. You know, the intention is to be accessible to patients and in a lot of ways it's not. So all the, the designers are making a difference in this part of healthcare is making these tools useful and usable and desirable and just like really fit into the context. So number one, to your answers, like making the system work so that patients can access services and patients are being served. So that's like number one at a systemic level. And then to answer your question, like a direct impact, um, I'm trying to think of an example, but like one of the things that we're learning is when you start to put all this technology in place and all these systems in place and starting to be accountable, there's a new role that's emerging as the linchpin of the whole system, and that's someone called a case manager. And those are people who are usually highly, highly trained nurses, you know, spent their whole career nursing, and now actually have a desk job. <laughs> and their desk job is like working through the computer system to figure out who are the patients that are falling through the gaps and going after them. And uh, I did a project last year, really creating a really well-designed, workable tool for these case managers. And it's got to spend time with them and really learn about like what their life is like and how they engage. And this amazing, amazing stories of these are really dedicated people who just really want to make a difference. And their job is like tracking down people and finding out what those individual people need. And a lot of times it's a simple, I mean, here's a, a kind of a dramatic example is one of the case managers told us a story of they had this one patient that they recognized a pattern would show up in the emergency room every few months. I can't remember what their health condition was, but like run out of their medication, stop taking medication and like had an onset of their condition and got rushed to the ER. And the case manager sort of dug into the situation and learned about them. And what they found out is like this patient had the doctor that they were assigned to was like way across. They had moved. And so the doctor was really far away from their home. And so they didn't go. And, and so when they didn't go, they didn't get the prescription refills. And when they didn't get their prescription refills, they ended up in the ER. And that was a guaranteed way to get new prescription, get the drug back is you go to the R and they re-prescribe it for you. So the case manager figured out, oh, here's what's going on. Let's see. So she got the patient, a doctor that was in their own neighborhood and sent them a taxi for every appointment. And that's actually like a small, like some individual case manager made that choice. And that's caught on where like there's actually a huge shift now where a lot of these larger health organizations now have a taxi fund where they send taxis to make sure that people get to their appointments. And that's a shift when, like when the doctors start to take on being accountable, that's a really direct impact on a patient. That's pretty amazing. I mean, it's certainly more cost effective to do that. Exactly. Like there's a first time that someone had to do it. I'm sure there was a lot of explaining. And then finally they figured, actually, this is a lot cheaper than sending the person to the ER. To some people, I would imagine they would say, well, if somebody isn't responsible enough to get themselves to their doctor's appointment, why should it be the fault or the responsibility of the healthcare industry to do that for them? Yeah, that's a really uh, political question. What's the case now in our society is we kind of all pretend that we're not responsible for each other. And the reality is 
we're all paying for that person's ER visit, the ambulance. If they're not insured or if they're insured by Medicare, Medicaid, like that's coming out of all of our pockets. And the way that our system is set up right now is no one's really being accountable. And so the costs are there. And what we're shifting now is like, let's put someone in charge of these costs. And so why not the doctors and the health systems and, and the hospitals? And so that's what's shifting. And you, when you put someone, it could be anyone in the system being accountable, they're going to come up with the creative ideas like these taxis. But that's what we're playing with now is in our society, we're switching to like, let, what happens when the health system is accountable? And what we're starting to see is a lot less waste and a lot more creativity and things like this taxi example. I totally agree with what's happening. I was just imagining other people thinking about like, I'm not paying for your taxi. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Aaron, just to step back for a minute, we skipped right over the intro, but I think it's really interesting how you arrived. I think it's worth our people hearing that you didn't come to this with a deep health background. And so it'd be really interesting to hear the kinds of things you've worked on in your past and how you ended up in health. Yeah. So health has always been sort of in the background of something that I am committed to, even at the early stages of my career. And coming into design, and I came in from the aspect of human-centered design and human factors and really learning about people and understanding how the brain works and memory and attention and perception, and then starting to apply that knowledge to the shape of how do we create tools and products and services that actually fit with the way people think and the, what people expect. And it's super interesting field and design as a whole. There's like so much you can do with it. And my intention from the outset was like to use that power for good. And like you can do all that learning about people and what people care about and like come up with really awesome ways for people to put money into slot machines or smoke more cigarettes. And so I have always just had the mindset of like the kind of work that I want to be doing, the kind of projects that I want to be working on is using the skills that we all trained in to make a difference and to actually contribute to people's lives. And health is just such an obvious, straightforward thing. We all have to deal with our personal health, our family members' health. And it's like just so real that to make an impact on that is really gratifying. So when I bulk of my career was at IDEO as a design consultancy, there's lots and lots of different projects. And over the time there, I always had health as sort of, again, the umbrella theme and always had health and wellness had every year, I would say, two or three really amazing projects that were right in the sweet spot. Did that really great project designing a new bike for Shimano for people who don't bike great project doing DNA sequencing and building it using the workflow for a DNA sequencing machine, which was amazing. We had a great project with the CDC that Chris, you and I worked on together about how to get kids to eat healthy, how to get kids to eat vegetables. So every year there's so many opportunities and that sort of has always fed into now in the last three years, I've been focused a hundred percent on healthcare and like a hundred percent on this like literal healthcare world that's about understanding the system, understanding the tools that make the system work. And it's really been a thrill. A lot of people listening to our podcast think, yeah, that's interesting. I just don't have time to apply design thinking to my life. And a couple of critics say things like that. These are single people that have done well, and now they've got time to really think about themselves. And that's absolutely not the case for you. You know, you've got kids and a family and a commute and everything else. So can you share a little bit of 
for lack of a better way of saying it, how you manage your time and how do you carve in all these things that you're doing? That's a good question because I think that's at any stage of life, that's always the question. How do you fit in everything that you want to accomplish? And I don't have any secret answer to it and any secret tricks. And for me, it's really about being clear about my priorities. Like for me, my number one priority is my family and being a husband and being a father of three sons. And it's really important to me every morning, like I'm the guy that makes breakfast for everybody. I'm in every evening, we're all home together for dinner. And so like, that's like, those are some anchor points. And then I've got to, you know, fit in my full-time job and fit in my other passions and my friendships and activities. And I think the secret actually is teams and teamwork. I'm actually uh, in a a leadership program. In addition to all of that, I'm also in a a year-long leadership program. And the whole training of the program is how to create teams and teamwork and to cause everything that you want to cause. So like in prescribed design, it's not me doing it. It's me bringing people together and forming teams and causing other people to step up to be team leaders. And really, we've accomplished a lot. And just, it's really been like two or three months. The same thing, and obviously work is all teamwork. And even with family, like creating teams around my family with my parents helping out, with babysitters, and just bringing more people into each of those conversations. When you're a solo artist, it's really hard to imagine fitting everything in. But really the training that I'm getting is like the more teams and teamwork you have, the more you can accomplish. That's fantastic. I feel like I've been struggling with that myself since leaving my job and going freelance and taking on all these initiatives. And I've totally been a solo artist. So thank you for helping me (laughs) to see that I need to invite more people in. And one thing that I'm taking away from this conversation is like, I haven't like thought to myself literally, oh, I'm doing design thinking now, and this is a design thinking activity, but just I'm realizing that just being so immersed in the design world and the way that we all work just makes me naturally have those types of processes in my own life. And it just occurs to me like working as a team is a big part of being a designer. It's really, there's a limit to what you can accomplish as a single designer and working with other people with different skills, you can accomplish so much more. Absolutely. Aaron, are there things you're doing in your life right now where you're absolutely not an expert? So where you're taking on something, you know, kind of brand new, whether it's a hobby or anything in your life where you're, you consider yourself early stage beginner. Randomly, what just popped into my mind is, this is a really random thing to say, but breathing is something that I'm new at. I went to the Quantified Self Conference in San Francisco last month and was just happened to like be standing near this booth. You know, the whole conference is all about all these wearable things, tracking your steps and your heartbeat and all that. And I was like, I never wanted to track any of that stuff. But then there's one product called Spire. And I talked to the founder, Nima, who was just talking about being conscious of breathing. And then what this product does is it it tracks your breathing, your breath, and like gives you feedback throughout the day, like you're tense or you're holding your breath or you're really calm. And I didn't buy the device that day, but I like the whole rest of that day that I, after I talked to him, I was like conscious, like, oh my gosh, I'm holding my breath. And so the next day I bought it and I've been wearing it on and off and just been very newly conscious of how I breathe and how that makes a difference in my day and in my conversations and definitely by no means a master of it, but I'm really intrigued and interested of like what's going to come from that. Yeah. Does you build on your experience there is I've noticed so many of those, not necessarily just picking on the quantified self-conference, but 
a lot of it's very serious and can come across as pretty self-absorbed. And my dream, we should all do this together, was let's create a laugh tracker, you know, <laughs> where you can look back at the end of the day and say, wow, I hardly laughed at all today. This is ridiculous. I think that's a fantastic idea. I was at an improv workshop yesterday and I was laughing so hard. My cheeks hurt. And then it just struck me. I had not laughed that hard in such a long time. That's great. Yeah, yeah we're definitely taking ourselves too seriously. And yeah, it seems a lot of laughter could go a long way. That's awesome. That's so much better than what I thought you were going to say. When you- <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. Aaron. No, well, when you said laugh tracker, I like imagined a button that you push that would like have laughter. Ah, like everything. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a laugh track. Yeah. Fake laughter. <laughs> you, you walk around and like create laughter after everything you say. <laughs> that is also an interesting idea. I like your idea better, Chris. Oh, thank you, Aaron. <laughs> Aaron, what are some ways that you see that people could better design their lives for health? In the work that you've been doing, I'm imagining that you're seeing a lot of people's stories. Yeah. I mean, to think about it, I, a lot of the people that I've met who are, you know, again, because I'm in the healthcare world, I'm like more thinking about it from people who like have an ongoing condition and like sort of the patterns that I've seen that really make a difference for people like that. Yeah. I think uh, that would be helpful. Like one of the things that really struck me, and I think probably all of the conversations I've had with people who have, there's a lot of people who have ongoing conditions and there's a lot of people who have ongoing conditions that they can't quite figure out what they are. And those are the most frustrating because our health system is really expert at like, if you fit all these boxes and we can recognize, we can diagnose you, then we like do the math and here's your solution, here's your medication, here's your operation, done. And if there's someone who doesn't fit those boxes, our health system doesn't know what to do. And it's super frustrating. And I've met enough people to like see that that's a a really big pattern. And what I've seen all of those people strive to create is a relationship with a healthcare provider. And whether that's like their primary care physician and like I met a guy who just like loves, loves, loves is, you know, older gentleman is in his seventies, loves his doctor at Kaiser. I mean, this is a direct quote from him that my doctor is like the most important person in my life. And like, he said that right in front of his wife. (laughs) Oh man. That's like really, I mean, that just shows like that's a really powerful relationship. And then I've met lots of people who sort of have either rejected the traditional primary care doctor relationship or for whatever reason. And I met this one woman who's like gone on a rampage with alternative healers and she called herself an alternative healing junkie and like all the acupuncturists and uh, massage therapists. And she had a lot of really different, interesting things, biofeedback. I can't remember what else. And she just, and when we were talking, she realized like, wow, I'm just doing all of that, chasing all of these people in order to have the experience of being cared for. Because Mm. like the way that the relationship she had with her primary doctor just wasn't doing it. So she's really seeking that out. So like finding that relationship, whatever that is, that could be your doctor, could be your massage therapist, could be your physical trainer, it could be your neighbor, just someone like that you really like in that exploration with. Because I think what is occurring to me, like that the way that health for all of us is, I mean, it really is a lifelong journey. And it's not just this something that happens during those 20 minutes once a year where you see your doctor and really being able to fill in that whole year, like 
whether that's tools like a Fitbit or you know the breathing or the laugh tracking, what are the tools that you want to bring into your life and what are the people that you want to bring? What is the team that you want to create around yourself as your care, your personal care team, your family, your doctor, your alternative healers? This one guy, actually the same guy who's the older guy who loves his doctor, he gets input from everyone. One funny story that stood out for me is like he gets advice from the, he calls them the kids at Whole Foods. <laughs> and like he's like the kids of Whole Foods turn me on to turmeric, and like he just adds that spice to like all of his foods now. Just that someone suggested that to him, and he decided he learned that that was like a healthy thing for him. And like people are just getting input from so many different places now, and building up their own care team. I would say that's what's the theme that I would underline from this conversation: is build your own personal care team, whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. Aaron, I have to share since. People may not know, but I also work in healthcare and a couple of funny stories where I was talking to a guy about preventative health and he said, it's ridiculous. My Volkswagen dealer does a much better job. And all they do is they send me a message in the fall that says, it's going to rain soon. You should change your wiper blades. And he said, it's ridiculous that why can't the healthcare system be proactive with me? And his second quote was about labs and getting blood results. And he said, you know, it's funny in the rest of the world, nobody wants to be average or normal, but in healthcare, that's celebrated. Congratulations, you're average or <laughs> you're in range, you're normal. So it's just really interesting to see how people, what's seen as really positive from the inside, from the industry is just falling well short of inspiring or engaging or empowering for real people. And that makes me think about the fact that, I mean, in healthcare, traditionally, you're looking at other healthcare providers and how they're doing things. But the analogy to the car dealership, it's like you need to look outside of the healthcare industry to see how people are dealing with different, they're engaging in different things every day with different industries. And they have that same level of expectation for healthcare. Yeah, it's a brand new conversation in the healthcare world about actually being customer focused, patient focused. That's just not the default way for the last hundreds and hundreds of years that doctors have worked. It's always been that the doctor is the guru, the expert, and you just come in. The doctor is also very important and busy and you have to like work around the doctor's schedule and whatever wisdom you can get from the doctor, you just hang on their every word. That's sort of the model that, that's been healthcare for the last several hundred years. And what's shifting, and this is also related to accountable care, is now that organizations are accountable, they're actually really committed that you stay as part of their network and that you're part of their caseload of patients. That if you leave and start going to a new doctor, like they literally lose a ton of money and they're more conscious of it. And so it's a whole new conversation and that's what design can bring and exactly what you're pointing out, Tracy, is learning from other industries, learning about best practices and engaging people and building loyalty and branding and building products and services that really work and really work for all of the different people involved, both the patients and the doctors and the system and the family members. There's this really new conversation and there's so much that designers bring that just that bring naturally that just like automatically make a huge difference very, very quickly. What are your dreams for prescribed design? What do you hope to see it become in the future? That's a great question. I've been just making it up as I go and it's already like exactly what I wanted it to be. What I said I wanted was really vibrant group of people who know each other and care about these issues together and are just have a platform 
for taking our what were very individual conversations and bringing them together and, and making them loud. And I've just really loved what we've accomplished so far. Like there are so many people now who now know each other and are just like really bringing those conversations together over time. I just like it to just be louder and louder and louder. I don't know what that looks like. We have the website prescribedesign.com. We've got a LinkedIn group called Prescribed Design. And both of those are like super active in terms of people visiting the site, in terms of people commenting on the LinkedIn group. And it's really just a great way for people to connect and support each other in their projects and their careers. And I'm trying to think what else I would want to say going forward, but it's just, I would say louder. <laughs> <laughs> and I know like this is a role to prescribe design as a way to bring designers into the conversation. Is there any role that just lay people can be involved or if they have an interest in it? Yeah. I mean, the, the whole, we just published an article on the website this past week. That's all about like, am I included in this conversation? And if you're wondering if you're included, the answer is yes. Because just the fact that you're wondering means that you're interested and you're in the conversation. There are sort of three main groups of people who are part of the conversation, part of the community. So it's obviously it's designers who are interested in healthcare, working in healthcare or want to be working in healthcare. The second group, we're calling them healthcare natives. So people, doctors, nurses, other medical staff, healthcare administrators who see that they want to make a change and see design as a potential tool that's going to make that difference and they want to learn more about design. And then the third category is sort of more technology specialists and providers, vendors who are serving the healthcare industry and want to provide, again, tools and services that are going to fit that context. And there's sort of a whole continuum along all three of those groups. But those are the people we want to be talking to and those are the people we want to be talking to each other. And that's what prescribed design is all about. Fantastic. Aaron, it's been an honor talking to you. That's so exciting to hear what you're up to and you're an inspiration to us. And I know you'll be inspiring a lot of people that listen to this episode. So appreciate your time today. Great. Thank you. I loved it. It was a great conversation. And cool. any kind of parting thoughts for people that might be new to design thinking, considering it for themselves or even potentially as patients and sessions you might have for navigating the system as a patient? Well, my big takeaway, I'll say it again in, in a different way to answer that question, is like that design thinking is, is sort of just a way of approaching the world. And I would encourage everyone sort of new to it or sort of learning about it is like the pitfall that a lot of people come to is like, let's do a design thinking activity for this hour or this day or this workshop, and then they're done. And what I'm taking away from this conversation, and I would encourage everyone to start thinking about is like design thinking is all day, every day. And it's just a way of looking at the world that's going to play out in all of your work and all of your conversations and your family. And it's something that it's not a discrete action. It's just an approach that if you start to really immerse yourself in the tools, and I th again, the main tools that I would underline are empathy, like really caring about what matters to people around you. That's number one. And then number two is prototyping and iterating. And like, if you just do those two things throughout your life, like you're doing design thinking and you'll see the impact. Thanks, Aaron. Amazing. Thanks for coming on the show, Aaron. I think the um, takeaways for me, one, I was pleasantly surprised that Aaron 
did not think that individuals designing for themselves was a bad idea. That was... That was a surprise? No, I thought he... It surprised me that he thought it was as exciting as we thought it was. Oh, good. And yeah. I was afraid that he might not. He talked about the design process, and we talk theoretically about the design process often, but he talked about it starts with an individual, and usually in a design project, it goes to scale up for some big thing or product, mm -hmm. and how cool it is to close the loop. So we're talking to individuals and then actually have the individuals do the things that are for the individual. Yeah, I was surprised that he said that he hadn't thought of it before, like that he wouldn't <laughs> think to apply it to himself, although he does. I mean, I he think applies he does. it, but it's just not conscious. Yeah, and you know, it's it's funny you talk about it that way because he, we talked about his vacation, right? And we talked about how they used a, a very loose sort of design framework to think about their vacation, but they weren't specifically going through the process. And he said something like, "It's not like we brainstormed what the vacation would be in." And then later you asked, "Why don't you think people brainstorm?" And and he said something actually really stood out. It's really simple. He said, "I just don't think they think to." And I, to me, it just rationalized everything we're doing Yeah. around like, yeah, I don't think we do think that about let's hold a brainstorm about my next career path or what I'm going to do this summer or how a relationship should work. You yeah. know, um, I don't think we get that creative. I think we ruminate about it like internally. Yes. But we don't hold space to expand. That's you right. Know? That's right. Uh, and that's been coming up a lot in the work that I've been doing too, and like presentations I've been giving and trying to figure out how do you, yeah, how do you just introduce the concept to people that when you have a problem, you don't just jump to solution. Yes. You, you take some time, but everybody's so motivated to get it solved. I think that they're just like, well, yes. I came up with an idea. It sounds good enough. Let's go. Yes. Yes. And on the one hand, we do talk about like, you know, just get started, do something, take a step. Yes. Um, but it's like, don't, don't take the step assuming that you've solved the problem. It's just a, an experiment to try before you come up with what the ultimate solution might be, but it could take a while. Yeah, I agree with that. And it also makes me think, as came up on our conversation, was I think we think a lot about problem solving, right? And yes. even as individuals, you're, you, a problem crosses your path, you know, mm -hmm. it's, Here's a situation that I need a fix for. And the same thing happens with any problem in the world is you do want a solution fast because you have a problem. Yes. <laughs> and so, so the idea that you would actually proactively get ahead of those problems and think about like, oh, here's an opportunity for me that I, so many of us, I think have a lot of things on our shelves around mm -hmm. things we'll get to or when I eventually get the time for, and I think everyone would nod their heads right now saying, rarely do you actually get to those things. Right. And unless they become a problem and that now you're forced to say, now I have a problem. I've lost my job or we need to move to another state right. or, or like, bleeding I've got extensively. a kid. Yeah. <laughs> or, or I've got a disease now, you know, these yeah. are, those are problems. And, and I think we're advocating that you can use design for those problems. Mm -hmm. And we're also advocating to take some things off the shelf um, that you want to pursue and, and proactively get after. Yeah. I'm really curious uh, on the way um, to, to visit you tonight, I was listening to Freakonomics and yeah. the podcast was about how to become great at something. Like what are the steps that you would take? And it was all around deliberate practice. Yeah. And, and I just had a question about, like, what drives us fundamentally to want to challenge ourselves, yeah. you know? Yeah, 
Yeah. Like, why would yeah. you want to learn to play guitar? Yeah. Or why would you want to, you know, t like pursue these things that are on your shelf? Why are they on your shelf to begin with? That's right. And you know that it's going to be a challenge, right. but yet you still are attracted to that. Right. It's I can't think of, yeah, it's like, what if I'm <laughs> trying to picture kind of anyone I've ever met that just like wouldn't have anything on the shelf. Like, nah, never. Good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's all good. Not trying to change anything. Not trying to solve any problems. Not right. trying to grow. I'm, I'm good. Yeah. Right here. Just enjoying life. That actually sounds pretty nice. <laughs> it does, in theory. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. But yeah, your your underlying point is yeah. So where's all the um, the gumption? You know, where's mm -hmm. all the the drive coming from? And does the compassionate achiever outdo the one that is like the beat themselves up achiever? Ooh. Yeah. So I'm taking that compassion class right now. Yeah. And yeah, it's really interesting because it's surfacing how harsh I am on myself yeah. and how much I strive for things. And then I get overwhelmed with all of that striving and then I kind of don't do anything. Right. And then I get bored and then I cycle back and then I strive. So yeah, just being conscious of it and then trying to apply the compassion I would obviously show to other people. Yeah. Trying to apply that to myself. Yes. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And it's once you get those things out of an individual and into a group setting, like I always think about really famous teams like like the Beatles, right? Right. If the Beatles are like, This song sucks, it's it's horrible. And like every every show they play, they're like, We could have been so much better. Like it just sound you could right. just hear it taking away their momentum yeah and if you do that in a public forum you realize like wow that's really not productive no to be that hard yet do they hold a high bar for themselves absolutely and i don't know that much about Beatles yeah. history to tell you but i think the <laughs> it's it seems to be a fine line between holding yourself to a you know a achievement goal but right. not holding it so high that you're just drowning your energy for sure and i think that's a fine line to walk well, on the flip side, too, when things are so easy yeah. that you don't feel challenged. Yeah. Um, I'm working on a project right now, potentially, around learning to play guitar. Yeah. And they're trying to find ways to teach people to do it more easily. Yeah. And they're trying some things which made it so easy that then people just dismiss it. Right? So you have to find that uh, right level of yeah. challenge for yeah. different people at different stages in their lives. Yeah. You really unpacked healthcare nicely. I'm trying to pull out. Well, there was a lot of interesting conversation I felt around that quantified self yes. piece yeah. with the spire. I wondered how, if he's still using it. Because I feel like those things, you know. It's kind of come and go. Right? Yeah. But how do you how do you create that excitement that you want to keep with it? And that's what I like a lot about the way that Aaron sees the world is there are certainly the practical factors, you know, sort of the data and the things that you get back. Mm -hmm. But as any great human factors person knows, but especially in my experience with Aaron, is that we do these emotional things that are just highly irrational or just completely unpredictable. Yeah. And I think all the math and information about quantified self or the way a Fitbit works, or it makes perfect sense, right? But then the emotional side is what actually drives the behavior. So how mm -hmm. do you create that um, kind of feedback loop that's exciting, emotionally exciting and emotionally interesting? And allows for the failures, right? You know, and makes it playful and fun and human, you know. Yeah, and then that makes me think about um, Kyra Bobinet talking about how designs have expiration dates, 
And so how do you keep those things kind of going long term? How do you make right. a breathing product interesting yes. a year from now? Yes. Or yes. maybe it's not meant to be yes. used for that long. Maybe it's meant to change your behavior and then you carry on without yes. it. It's yes. like training wheels. Yes. But I did really love your laugh tracking idea. <laughs> yeah. I think that's highly undervalued. I think it is. Yeah, I think, well, to me, I think it's just a proxy for an emotional tracking device. Yeah. You know, it's like, what are the things that best reflect your emotions? How many times, like, ask a guy, like, how many times he's cried in the last year, but it's pretty few, right? Oof. Yeah. yeah. Like, anyone in the world would know that a good cry is pretty amazing. Yeah, so, cathartic. Yeah, could we count that on an annual basis? Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> or we were talking in healthcare recently about the ethical line of big data and predictive mm. analytics. And, right. you know, we're pretty close right now to just knowing if two cell phones are by each other, you know that somebody's not alone. So you oh, could say, it. you could see things like, huh, did we, we sent an, an elderly person home after a surgery? And we realize they've been alone for five days straight. This yeah. is the this is a thing of the future. It's not happening right now. Right. But you could get that, and that that'd be really interesting. And is I'd be I would like to know information that I can't get for myself. That would be really helpful for me. Like yeah. Hey, last month you were around a lot more people than you were the month before, and you seem to be happier. Or you're freaking out because you're an introvert. Like you you need to retreat. That is too many people for you. You know. <laughs> so that would be helpful. So I think. I think the promise of getting insights that we don't know to to look for or to not look for, but right. like that passive teeing up of like, Tracy, did you know that when you're around more people, you you spend less money? Or, you know, it's just like, no way. I didn't know that. It's interesting. I, that just made me think of like, you know, people go to psychics to envision the future and, and to get a sense of like, who am I? Yeah. Right? Like, I can't, I can't know myself so I need you which has no scientific basis right <laughs> but it feels good mm -hmm. and then it, when you're talking about you know who would have this information be making these insights then yeah. it feels creepy like big brother the healthcare system like <laughs> I don't want them to know these things about yes. me yes. which is unfortunate because well, the, the information is valuable and people would probably want it it's, but it's trust, like who yeah who do, do, you, do trust? you trust do you trust that information in? yeah and it would be really interesting to just have that information. It's kind of like you wish you just had it for yourself. Right. It With wasn't no, being used to sell ads. Or no external that. party involved. Yeah, it's just for you, by you. That would be really interesting. All right. Well, thanks to Aaron for enlightening us about the healthcare system and design. All right. That's a wrap. Thanks so much for listening. Our dream is to build a community of people who can create and take advantage of any opportunity that interests them. To do this really well, we'd love for you to participate. Try out and share back your own life design experiments, or if you've already got a great story of how you've designed your life, we'd love to hear from you on our Facebook page or at resultsmayvarypodcast.com. Our website is also where you'll find show notes and links to all of the things we mentioned in the episode. And if you would be so kind, subscribe to the show and share your favorite episodes with friends. That'll let even more people start designing their own lives. A big thanks to the folks who help us make the show possible. Composer and filmmaker H.P. Mendoza for the Results May Vary theme music. Graphic designer Anessa Bramer for our logo. David Glazier for sound mixing. And Team Podcast for editing. 
And of course, thank you so much for listening to Results Green Berries!